1: If you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would open with me to the book of Judges, chapter 13. Of all the places that I envisioned standing at some point in my life, the pulpit of a seminary chapel was not one of them. Uh, I am really grateful uh, to be here and to be in this position, be able to speak to you uh, this morning in many ways, transitioning from uh, sitting in the pews here to pastoral ministry in the local church has proven that I am a bit of a slow learner in many areas related to practical ministry. There are at least two clear areas that I was overwhelmingly naive to as I stepped off of the seminary campus and into pastoral ministry. One was the ease with which what I learned in the classroom would translate to pastoral ministry. I assumed there was going to be an easy one-to-one correspondence between my marriage and family class here on campus and the first time I sat down with a couple facing marriage crisis and I learned this is way harder than it was cracked up to be. The second area in where I was overwhelmingly naive was my own personal ability to sabotage my own life through sin and personal weakness. I know that I had heard individuals in pulpits like this and pastors exhort me to faithfulness time and time again, but 10 years into pastoral ministry has proven that I am my own worst enemy and so are you and it is to that subject that i would like us to turn in the book of judges chapter 13 i had at this point read many of the tragic stories of those who flame out or burn out and i'd seen a few of those firsthand but i passively assumed that their fate was never one that would touch me perhaps it was because i sat in this chapel with many advantages many of the same advantages that you have i grew up in a home where the gospel was taught and communicated. I was converted at a young age. I really stumbled into local church ministry and found a love for God's people in the context of the local church. I met and married a godly woman who helped me walk with Christ, served as a faithful helpmate, and I came to Southeastern and experienced solid theological training in a healthy local church. Thankfully, the Bible gives us various case studies that are instructive and serve as a mirror for what it means to waste our advantage. And that is the subject I would like to speak on this morning. Samson's story, told in Judges 13 through 16, is one of the most remarkable and memorable stories in all of the Bible. It is a story of great strength that turns into tragic weakness. Every time I read this story, I think of my high school yearbook. When coming through high school, we did uh, senior superlatives. That may uh, be a thing for you. And because teenagers are such astute observers or who is going to succeed in life, we had the most likely to succeed category. And now flipping back through those pages, I am well aware that at 17, we did not peg those who were actually going to succeed in life. Samson would have received the award as the most likely to succeed, and yet his life presents for us a tragic story that will mirror our own. This story this morning is meant to do at least three things for us as the author recounts Samson's experience. One, it summarizes for us the entire book of Judges. It is a people who do what is right in their own eyes, and we'll see time and again Samson doing what is right in his own eyes and proving that there is a way that seems right to man but in the end, it leads to death. Zoomed out again one layer, it's meant to summarize the entire plight of the nation of Israel, a people who time and time again were given privileged opportunity to be faithful to God and yet proved that they would follow their own foolish passions. And then as the poet Milton says, this text serves us as a mirror to our fickle state. It is meant to be instructive to us personally of a picture of wasted advantage. Let's pick up the story in Judges chapter 13. We read in verse 1, the people of Israel again did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. I want to make three clear observations of Samson's advantage The first advantage Samson possesses at the outset of this text is he receives a clear call from God. His life is clearly set apart from the outset as we transition to verse two. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. So what we see at the outset of this text has been pointed out by many commentators. This pattern of sin Judgment, repentance, and deliverance played out time and time again throughout the judge's narrative. But by the time we reach chapter 13, it seems like the people have perhaps gone too far. The Lord has raised up the Philistines who are going to act in judgment over God's people for their continued rebellion, and the Philistines are bad dudes, bad dudes, and 40 years of judgment, they rule over God's people. The picture is bleak, but as we transition to verse 2, we see God act in His grace to provide once again a deliverer. Now, this transition between verses 1 and 2 seems natural unless you read through the eyes of the ongoing story played out in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 3, verse 9, we read, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. A bit later in verse 15, we read, Then the people of Israel cried to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Chapter 6, verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Then again in chapter 10, verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our gods and have served the Baals. Four times in the text up to this point, the people are judged for their sinful disobedience. They cry out to God and God provides a deliverer to accomplish for them what they could not accomplish for themselves. Interestingly, between verses one and two in Judges chapter 13, we see no evidence of a cry. The people aren't crying here. And yet God, as a miraculous picture of the gospel, does for them. He acts on their behalf, even apart from a cry that they possess. It seems that they have grown content in their subservience. There's little evidence of discomfort or evidence of wanting to be delivered. But God acts for them when they are too foolish to cry. And how does he do that? He sets apart a child from birth. To be holy. We read in the text that follows in verse 4 that his parents are instructed to be careful to drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. That would be a terrible fate for a guy like me. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. For he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Samson had a unique set-apartness from, from his birth. He was, unlike others who took the Nazarite vow, called to this type of holiness from before he was ever born. And he would be one, the text tells us, who begins to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He had a clear call, a clear set-apartness. God had a purpose and a mission for his life in a very similar fashion as you and I. Many of us come to this place with the remarkable privilege of being called sons and daughters of the living God, then called to serve God's people in and through the local church, and then by virtue of the gift of his imputed righteousness, set apart, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and called to a holy life that is above reproach in leading God's people. But we see a bit of foreshadowing of Samson's fate at the end of verse 5, what is perhaps the thesis statement on these four chapters that this one, this deliverer that God raises up will only begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The writer knows that the fulfillment of this deliverance will await another day and another far greater deliverer who will succeed in every way that Samson fails Secondly, we see in Samson's experience evidence of the power of God. Skip down to verse 24, the end of chapter 13. This woman, an obscure no-name woman, bears a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. But as we transition to verse 14, though the Lord is blessing Samson's life, clearly setting him apart, giving him a defined mission, We're not off to a good start as chapter 14 picks up. Samson decides that he wants to marry a Philistine woman. And he says in verse 3 to his father who says, isn't there a girl from our own people that you can take? Verse 3, go get her for me because she is right in my own eyes. Again, we see this bit of particularity in Samson's experience that is true of the people as a whole at this point, doing what is right in their own eyes. But yet, quickly following this passage, though Samson sins and acts in disobedience, we note that neither foolishness nor stubbornness is going to prevent God from getting his way, as we'll see later. He's going to work to accomplish his purpose and display his power of beginning to deliver the Israelites in spite of Samson's sin. Then in verse 5, Samson went down with his father and his mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father and mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now this, this passage just demands all sorts of questions, right? I mean, it's instructive for those of us who have torn young goats in our past that we have at least a category of comparison. You know, the way that you tore the goat, well, he did it a bit greater than that. Two points are worth noting. I have not torn apart young lions in my experience, but if I did, number one, I would probably tell my mama. Like that that would be like first phone call, text message. Mom's gonna know if I tear a young lion. Secondly, I don't know what's gonna happen at this pre-date little courtship experience here, but if I go to talk to a woman after tearing apart a young lion, like nothing's stopping me. I mean, some of you guys have had some pretty good pre-date shenanigans going on when you show up at her door and knock. If I tear a young lion, I'm probably taking the carcass with me to present to her as I knock on the door, right? This text proves, though it is almost comical in its delivery, that when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, whatever happens in his experience from this point forward will not be from a lack of strength. His problem will never be from lack of strength because just like God's work among the nation of Israel, God can do whatever he wants. He rushes upon Samson and he can accomplish things that Samson could never accomplish in his own strength. So whatever happens in this text is going to be a result of Samson's rebellion, not from a lack of God's power, we see in the text that follows, going up to a, to a party, he scrapes his hand in the abdomen of the lion, which always makes me sing the Winnie the Pooh song. He's walking along with the honey in the abdomen of the lion on his hand. And the question is like, why? As we're reading this entire chapter, the what is, what is our boy Samson doing? And the text doesn't tell us. He just wanted some honey. So this is what he does clearly violating his Nazarite vow to not touch something that's dead. He takes the honey because he wants honey. And then he goes up to this party and the Philistines are there and then riddle boy launches into a riddle, right? Hey, I just got honey from the lion, so let me tell you a riddle. And, and, and if you lose, I get your clothes. If, if, if I lose, then I got to give you some clothes. It's a silly, silly story. Why? It seems like because our boy thought of a riddle like the text just doesn't say finally after the woman comes and the waterworks explode you don't love me if you love me you would tell me this riddle samson tells her the riddle and she goes back and tells the philistines who come and tie and bind our boy samson but in verse 19 the spirit of the lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and he struck down 30 men of the town and he took their spoil and gave the garments to those who told the riddle. So Samson loses the riddle because he tells his secret and he says, well, I'll show you. I'll go and strike down 30 men and I'll take their clothes and give them to those to whom I lost the bet. Like, the, like with the lion episode in verse 19, God's power comes upon him and he crushes the enemy soon following the classic 300 fox tail episode where he ties the foxes tails together and sends them to destroy the town why i mean why not right i mean this is a classic way of getting back at your enemies foxes have tails why not light them on fire and release them to destroy the enemy then in verse 11 of chapter 15 after showing off what happens when the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and he's able to destroy the enemy. In verse 11, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and they said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What a tragic verse, right? What then is this that you have done to us? Man, things were good, Samson, before you started lighting foxes' tails on fire and sending them among the people. This is not good. Chill out, brother. And yet, verse 14, he came to Lehi and the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. At this point, the Israelites have bound him. They're going to take him to the Philistines to deliver him. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became his flax and they caught fire and his bonds melted off of his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. Again, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he shows off God's strength with a classic mic drop scene, right? Just kills a thousand, throws the jawball down and walks off. Here's, here's the point. Here's the point. When the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, he can do anything. These episodes, building in severity or greatness, are meant to fuel the fires of future faith for our brother Samson. Did you see what I can do with that lion? Imagine what I could do to the Philistines. The same with the David and Goliath episode, if you remember that story. Yeah, sure. I can tow the lion with Goliath. When I was out in the fields, I was defending the sheep, and God trained my heart with these lesser evidences of his power at work by allowing me to defend off these that towed me up to the lion to step up to battle with Goliath. This is what is meant to be happening in our brother Samson. These are preparatory glimpses of God's power that are meant to do something far greater. And the same is often true in our lives. God shows how adequate He is for us by smaller evidences of grace that prepare us to trust Him in much greater acts of courage. These glimmers of grace as young leaders, a sermon that goes fairly well (laughs) Some people who affirm your ministry gifting and say, have you ever thought about being a pastor? You help someone know and follow God. You actually are faithful and make a disciple and somebody's life changes. These glimmers of God's grace and power that are meant to fuel the fires for future faith often becomes a means of us flexing our own muscles. Like, what is our boy doing? You have things like defeating the Philistines on your agenda, and you can't find something better to turn your attention to than telling a few riddles? I mean, these are so small. Here's the man of God toying with riddles and killing 30 people here or there, barely making a dent, which forces me to hold the mirror to my own life and ask, has the evidence of God's power at work in my experience up to this point fueled the fires of future faith, or am I, because of my own muscle-flexing propensity, bent towards secondary matters that have no ultimate significance? In a day and age where it is so easy to be derailed into secondary matters that don't actually give evidence to God's power at all, men and women of God must ask, what has my past experience shown me about God's power at work in me, and what has that prepared me to do in the future? Sadly, far too often we spend 10, 20, 30 years derailed in secondary matters that are not a direct derivative of God's power at work in our lives up to that point. What is God preparing you for now based on the lion episodes of evidence of his power that are going to show off his power in far greater ways in the future? Lastly, the third advantage that we see in Samson's life Is clear exposure to his own personal sin and failure. Now you may ask, how is that an advantage? Let me return to that point in a minute. Let's read in Judges 16, beginning in verse 1. Samson went down to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place, and they set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning and then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight and at midnight he arose and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and he pulled them up bar and all and he put them on his shoulders and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. I mean, the classic foreshadowing of CrossFit played out at the beginning of chapter 16. This guy goes berserko and carries the the bars up up the hill of the city. But notice the progression in Samson's life. We have now a Philistine prostitute in the center city of this pagan land. Our brother has become more brazen because, as we've seen in chapter 14, a very similar experience plays out for him. He gets away with it, then comes to chapter 16, does a very similar thing, and then the story that we're perhaps most familiar with, the Delilah episode follows in verse 4 and following. The riddle plays out again, Delilah, waterworks, don't you love me, tell me the secret, and finally, Samson does what he's already done before, verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart he he has disclosed his secret here's how my power will will leave she sent and called to the lords of the philistines saying come up again for he's told me all his heart then the lords of the philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands and she made him sleep on her knees she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head then she began to torment him and his strength left him I want to work this in reverse order. What we have played out at the beginning of chapter 16, and then again in the end of chapter 16, he's told her the secret. He knows that he's told her the secret, and he goes to sleep on her knees. Why? The text tells us because he thought he could get up and break the bonds just like he had every other time. So work this in reverse order. We have an overconfident Samson. He thinks he can just come and go as he pleases, doing whatever he wants, breaking the bars just like he has in the past. We have, working in reverse order beneath that, a Samson who is is isolated. What has happened in chapter 14 is played out again. He's not submissive to anyone. He's not even in relation to anyone. His father has tried to warn him, don't go run after the Philistine woman. And what does Samson say? I'm gonna do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to do whatever I want. And in his overconfidence and isolation, we see that he's actually been successful up to this point. He's lulled to sleep because he's gotten away with his more minor acts of compromise and now he foolishly believes that he will get up, the Spirit of God will come upon him, and he'll be able to do just what he's always done in the path, not realizing that the saddest verse at the end of chapter 16, his strength is gone because God has left. And friends, let me warn you that perhaps the greatest, the greatest danger for you and I wasting our advantage is successfully getting away with areas of minor compromise. That not getting busted, being competent enough to angle around areas of sin without killing them is perhaps your greatest weakness. What we see here is that Samson's actions up to this point have actually driven out the presence of God from his life. And friends, isn't this the greatest danger that we face it is not Samson's strength, but it is the power of God at work in and through Samson that are going to give him success in whatever he does. And because of his minor areas of compromise, the Spirit of God leaves the building. And here we have this man who is poised to be an example of strength and God's power who is utterly helpless. Why? Because he did not heed the warnings of areas of minor compromise. He's engaged with a dead body. He's bent around areas of holiness. He's taken this woman here. He's done whatever he wanted to do, perhaps wondering what harm's gonna come if I continue to do these things. We see at the end of chapter 16 what harm is going to come from a man who is driven by passion to take whatever he wants. He takes whatever he wants when he wants it. Now, why is this, these glimmers of sin in chapters 14, 15, the beginning of 16, helpful for us? Because we see the Delilah episode is not the first time. In fact, our brother should have seen this coming. And friends, might I ask if the same is true for you? God often gives us grace by allowing us to see glimmers of what happens when unchecked passions dominate our lives. There are areas where God, in his kindness, has shown a spotlight to us to say, you better watch out, you better watch out. And this is why this season, a seminarian's experience, and in many ways I still feel like my own personal experience, is learning to grow in areas of killing sin and personal weakness while living in obscurity. Friends, perhaps that is the most important thing you can be doing at this stage in your journey, is allowing the spotlight of God's Spirit to shine on the evidences of sin in your life and putting those to death because those things unchecked, coupled over time, are going to end in your and my destruction. There is the great potential in pastoral ministry to be more grieved by the state of other people's sin than I am of my own. And I must learn at this point and continued forward to check my passions when God, in His grace, points them out rather than allowing them to run unbound. We see in verse 20, the spirit of the living God leaves Samson. He can't break these ties, and now he is bound in a pagan temple, grinding mill. This is what sin does. It's proof that he has done what is right in his own eyes, and now the end is death. Sin blinds. It prevents us from seeing the issues that are lurking in our heart often until it is too late, and yet the Samson story ends with one more clear advantage. One more clear advantage we see at the end of this experience before the death of Samson in verse 22. This note of the building grace of God, the hair on his head, began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, if you're watching a movie at this point and we come to this, this verse, this, this is the point, this is what frustrates me about movies. I watch movies, there's only a defined number of plot lines. We get to the end and I'm like, I know what's about to happen. Like, I I know what's about to happen. The music starts to build, and you know in the romantic comedy, things are about to come back together. It looks like everything's going to fall apart, but it never falls apart, and they're going to come back together. Right here in this story, we have this this tone building. The movie's playing out, and it's just like, I know what God's getting ready to do. This is just like God, right? It is just like God to end a story that is overwhelming failure with a note of his good grace. The end of verse 30, chapter 16, verse 30, Samson says, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength. The house fell upon the Lord's and upon all of the people who were in it. Then this verse. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Samson's life, in many ways, functions like an overhyped Super Bowl. The advantages are all there for this to be spectacular, and we get to the end, and this verse, he begins to deliver the Israelites. He accomplishes this purpose that God has planned for him, yet he only begins to save. His name will go down in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, And yet his death will be a prefiguring of another far greater deliverer that will give all of us Samson's great hope, one who does not kill others in his death, but one who through his death gives life, one who because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who while we were dead in our trespasses and sins set his affections on us knowing that proving time and time again we would do what is right in our own eyes yet succeeding in every place where Samson fails. The only one through his miraculous life who could defeat Satan's sin and death, stand up, toe the line with Satan's temptations, proving a relinquishment of his own rights for the purposes and plans of his father. In many ways, though, Jesus is the anti-Samson. He doesn't come into the picture with these grandiose notes that everyone knows of human physique and power and even success. He's born in a manger, no physical beauty that would draw us to him, yet he is the one to whom all glory, honor, power, and strength is actually due. And because of the great deliverer, all of us Samsons, who will prove time and time again to be Samsons, have the experience of lives that are bathed in grace, That far exceeds that of Samson's experience. You see, the grace that Samson experienced was grace at his death. You, friends, sitting here this morning, have been the recipient of the grace of God, and you still have days ahead. Would you allow, because of the power of the Spirit of God at work in you, the clear call of God on your life, the grace that you've received in your salvation and your sanctification? your personal experience with the power of God at work in your frail life, and his kindness to expose your personal sin and weakness, would you allow that to fuel a grace-filled fight for holiness so that our lives play out differently than did our brother Samson's? Would you join me as we pray? Our great God, we bow before you this morning. Thanking you that when we were too foolish to cry, you acted in your kindness and sent Christ to deliver us. That we have a far greater hero than Samson. One who offered us life in and through his death. And by the grace of God and the spirit of God and the word of God, you have been kind to us to grant the men and women in this room an abundance of advantages from your hand. And we shudder at the ease with which we can be Samson's in our own experience, the ease with which your power as it's been demonstrated in our lives can become our greatest weakness, and the ease with which we can derail ourselves through foolish sin and compromise. Would you allow this time as we meditate on your word, as we stand and sing about the hope that is ours through Christ, would you allow it to bring conviction for the areas where we are bending around sin, excusing it in our own hearts, thinking that we know far better what is for us than you do? Would you remind us that the end of that which seems right to man is death, And would you cause us to heed the warning lights of Samson's story in our own personal experience so that we could be the types of men and women who show off your great power for the rest of the days that you give us. We ask that for Christ's good name. Amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.